Team Team, Boafik, I hope you're ready to discuss Caribbean literature. I'm Mayla, a romance author from Guadeloupe. This is how I present myself today, but it took me about 20 years to give myself permission to write about my people falling in love and finding happiness. Why? Well, thank you for asking and I'm going to tell you why. I never got to read about Caribbean people being happily in love until 2019. And chances are, especially if you're listening to this podcast in 2021, you probably haven't either. That's why I decided to record my discussions with Caribbean authors who will give you an idea of their motivations and the issues they faced to get their romance stories published. My hope is for you to be inspired to write, to buy, because we're here to support, and to read romance stories set in the Caribbean with Caribbean people. On why. Tim, Tim, Boafik, welcome to episode 3, part 2. We're in Barbados with author Callie Browning. We'll discuss her book, The Vanishing Girls, and how intentional she is about representing her culture in a multi-dimensional way. We also take a look at our definition of being a Caribbean indie author in this current economy and how she combines her creative mindset with a business mindset. I hope you will enjoy our discussion. Tim Tim, Did you already have in mind what was going to happen in uh, The Vanishing Girls or did it come after? Well, it came after um, and it, it, was, it wasn't really intended at first to be a follow-up. Um, but I found I was, uh, you know, I, as I, I've said to you before, <laughs> I'm really not the best person when it comes to plotting. I have huge respect for people who plot and who craft their stories because I, I wish I sometimes could give people an idea of what my next book is going to be about. I mean, people are asking and I don't even know what to tell them <laughs> because it just I just come up with it. Um, so that really, The Vanishing Girls really started from a story that I was thinking about. I just had this idea of this man who was really old um and I was actually going to write about it for a short story that's how it started he was really old and he was um so similar to um the girl with the hazel eyes where Susan was reflecting on her life he was reflecting on his life but then I thought to myself I'm not really interested in him at this point you know I just after I started writing I felt like this doesn't feel right this doesn't feel like I'm really getting the parts of him that I like to know about Um, and he was a mortician and you know at first it was going to be set with him and just thinking back on life and funerals and and you know as he ends his life he's as he grows near to the end of his life you know he thinks back on everything he's learned but I really wanted to learn about him as a younger person as a younger man and when I went back into his life and looked at it and looked at his wife and that kind of thing, I realized this is the story here that I really want to get into. I really want to sink my teeth into. So that's how it started. Um, I know it's unusual to base it in a funeral home, but it just felt like a really natural thing to me. You know, oddly enough, as I was writing it, I felt like even my own questions about mortality and 
my existence and, and how I navigate that, you know, it gave me the chance to really think about those things. Um, and for that, I, I, for that reason, I really enjoyed writing it. Can you describe your book in three words? I would have to say thought-provoking suspense. Um, I picked those three words because, yes, it's a suspense novel, but um, there's also there's also some social aspects to it that I think are important in terms of um, violence against women, in terms of the relationship between men and women and how we perceive each other's existences. Um, I had one particular book club meeting where they asked me to speak and there was a gentleman in there and he said, you know, I've never thought before about what it's like to be a woman. I have to feel this fear. He said, because the truth is when things, when crimes against women are being perpetrated en masse, you know, I'm like, Chad, and that's bad. But I never think of how women feel just walking around every day, just always being fearful, always being um, worried, always, you know what I mean? You, like your spirit always heavy. Mm. And um, I, I feel like that was what I was trying to, to portray. I wasn't trying to portray it so much as a crime book, but more as a book where we have these discussions, we have these conversations, you know, about why it's important for us to protect women, why it's important for us to discuss how we can go about having discussions in our own community to help, you know, possibly, if possible, to help stop these kinds of things happening. Mine were thrilling because it, it's not about the suspense because the the story is set in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, well, it's very rare. I mean, I haven't read every book, every book set in the Caribbean, but I know mm-hmm. that the 80s isn't really a time that we talk about well i know from my french caribbean perspective we'll talk about 60s and 50s a lot yes and maybe sometimes mm-hmm. we'll talk about the 90s but we don't talk about the 80s so mm-hmm. yeah I, i would say time capsule because of that mm-hmm. and, and the last words i just loved the relationship between eileen and holden <laughs> holden is my book Uh, boyfriend me too my, me too one of my because mm-hmm. i really mm-hmm. love them why i enjoy all these stories when i realize that all of you writers are very different that's the uh, to me that's the similar things between all your lead characters your male lead character you feel you can rely on them but they are vulnerable so i was wondering how did you come up with uh holden's personality i, I don't think i put a huge amount of thought into it um at first it just kind of happened organically where i felt like he was always going to be someone who was conscientious and i, I feel like it's really hard to have somebody who spent their entire life around death because don't forget his father was also a funeral director which means he grew up in the family business so he's never not known death you know what I mean and I feel like if you have somebody who grows up around such a serious profession with such serious life lessons every single day I feel like it's going to impact on them and it's either going to make them reckless and realize you know what do whatever because you're going to die anyway or it's going to make you more cautious so that then the life you live is one of more substance and more quality. And I feel like that was um, the juxtaposition I chose to portray between Paul and his brother, Paul, where Paul is very indifferent. You know, he, he doesn't care. 
you know what I mean? Because he probably takes that approach. He's gonna, you know, he's gonna die anyway, do all the things. Whereas Holden is the opposite. So I, I felt like I had to take those characteristics of someone who is gonna live with purpose and manifest them through his actions. So that's how I, how Holden came to being. Because I thought about his environment more than I thought about him, if you get what I mean. I mean, your physical descriptions of the characters are usually straight to the point. And you don't shy away from saying the word black or saying the word brown. And you just move on. And you don't give us endless description of how brown the skin is or how dark the skin is. And you don't go about it every two or three chapters to remind us, oh, yeah, the character is this color. You just give a description. And Eileen, is, uh, she has an afro. Uh, how did you think about your physical description? How did you come up with the visual for your characters? I felt like her looks would would uh, be reflective of her inner spirit. And of course, that also has to take into consideration the time period. So obviously during the 80s, you know, let's not forget that the Jacksons were big. So they would have had their afros and that type of thing in the 70s. But I think by the 80s, they had moved over to jerry curls and things. So at one point, she does contemplate getting a jerry curl. So you know what I mean? These are the kinds of things that I think the average person would consider during the 80s because of the pop culture influences, which would have, you know, been around for them to reference. So that is how I, I choose to describe my characters in terms of how they style themselves. Um, in terms of the types of clothing, in terms of shoulder pads, in terms of the hair and everything else. I don't shy away from calling people, you know, saying people are dark-skinned or brown-skinned or whatever, simply because that's just a part of life. You know what I mean? I don't I don't think about it too much. And I feel like every single person in the world has seen a Black person. <laughs> and they've realized that Black people are so many different shades. I mean, literally, there are Black people who are white passing, who could be white passing. And then there, there are Black people who are, you know, very, very deeply melanated. So we have all these beautiful shades of people. And I, I feel like, you know, I just kind of give you a little nudge as to how melanated they are. And then we move on because I feel like once they, like, I give that, then that's enough because th their personality is going to do the rest of the talking for them, you know, for you to picture them. Uh, I would say in the two books I've read so far, you're very uh, precise about historical details. So since in Bookstagram right now, there's a lot of debate about, well, not a lot, but there's sometimes a debate about what it means to be authentically Caribbean. To you, what does it mean in your, in your writing to be authentic, authentically Caribbean? You make an excellent point. You're right. I am. It may come across as being very intentional and it is in a way, but at the same point in time, I'm just writing what I know. And I feel like because it's what I know, I, I don't always want to write about one type of community. I feel like a lot of Caribbean books, there does, there does tend to be one type of community for the most part. And I don't want to only represent one type of community. There's so many different types of communities. There's so many different types of lifestyles and people. And even in terms of writing about a funeral director who's well off, even though, yes, he's now facing some financial struggles because, I mean, every business goes through 
ebbs and flows. Um, but I really wanted to give a very, I want, I want to give a very holistic encapsulation of my country. And there are many different people. Um, and I feel like every single time you read about something I've written, you will, you will see a different side of the country. Because that's who we are. We're a, a country of 280,000 people. Small, yes. But all of us, we have different jobs. There are lawyers, there are shopkeepers, there are jet ski operators, there are um, housekeepers, doctors, you know, and everything in between. So it's really important for me to represent and show that there's so many different types of lifestyles and how all these integrate. Like, for example, in my upcoming anthology, the two main characters, one of them is the deputy prime minister. Um, but you know what I mean? And she's a female. So I feel like this is important for us to, to look at and, and see what all of these different people do and how they have their own lives. And, you know, it's important. It's important to talk about this. Yeah, so it's about uh, the people for you. It's not so much about insisting on making them talk in a specific way. And sometimes it ends up being too much and it doesn't feel natural. Exactly. And yeah, so, so it's more really about showing the people, showing the last, the lifestyle, like you said. And uh, from then, since you really want to be true to what they are, you just want to show who they are. So that's how the, the this authentic caribbean feeling will come up that's how i feel when i read your books like and um because i read a reviews on bookstagram the the reviewer i don't know if she was caribbean i, I feel like she was not and she was like well but i i felt like there was too much detail and it was like almost like reading a, a guidebook on on barbados And uh, because you, you're so precise about what, what's going on and about why things are this way, why people live there. And you're so technical about, and there's mm -hmm. so much pre precision in your description that she felt like it was too much. And I, so of course, I didn't like the review. I was wondering why she would feel that way and why she would feel it was something bad and then and that's why i think she wasn't caribbean because you show something different your books are just not about um the beach and uh, uh um, exactly. oh they're so poor or maybe oh, <laughs> there was a a, a natural disaster and uh, yeah. we need to rebuild and everything i mean you can write about it but mm -hmm. you just see these people you, you just just see people Yes. You just see people because everything that you just described actually happened in the girl with the hazelites. It was a natural disaster and they did rebuild, but it was about how the people, how they shifted, how they resumed life, how they adjusted to these changes, how they formed friendships that changed the courses of their lives and adjusted their growth through these things. You know what I mean? It's less about those things. Um, but you know what? I, I'm not. I always take every review when I, I listen to it. Well, anyone that I come across, we should say. And it's important to listen to other people's feedback. And there's there's nothing wrong. I mean, I say all the time, there's no book that every single person is going to like. Mm -hmm. So I don't I don't take any offense to it. If I see the same comments three or four or five times, then I, I do definitely sit up and, and listen. But if it's a one-off thing, I don't, I, I just see it as the person's opinion. And I'm always grateful for it. I say all the time. 
this person is taking the time out of their lives when they could be doing so many other things to read my book. And for that, I'm grateful that they took the time out to do that. So I always appreciate it. So uh, we're going to play fancast because I love All playing. right. Yes, I love playing fancast. <laughs> but the thing is, when we do, when we did it for um, the girl with the hazard eyes, we already mm-hmm. used Rihanna. So mm-hmm. I was wondering how, because you had visuals and you posted them on your on your Instagram mm-hmm. page. Mm-hmm. And uh, but if we had to cast uh, mm-hmm. celebrities to play Eileen, mm-hmm. to play Holden mm-hmm. and Paul and all all of them. Who would you choose? Honestly, I would never pick Rihanna to pay, play anyone in this book. I don't think she, I mean, she's great. Don't get me wrong. But yeah. I see somebody like Zoe Kravitz playing Eileen. I think Zoe Kravitz is like the right amount of punk and rocker, chic royalty mm-hmm. and a little badassness. I feel like I need somebody who's just like got like don't mess with me written on her face. And I love that mm-hmm. about Zoe Kravitz. Mm-hmm. So I probably would pick Zoe Kravitz <laughs> to play Eileen. Holden, I mean, I had, I don't know. <laughs> I I had so many different people I could probably think of to play him. Um, Who? I kind of, I had so many people, people, different people, but in a way, I kind of like like a, like a 1980s Blair Underwood type of thing. Oh, Blair Underwood! I I was I I think I was listening to to a podcast. I mm-hmm. yeah, probably because I don't watch. Uh, maybe or maybe a YouTube a YouTuber mm-hmm. review black media and everything. Mm-hmm. And Blair Underwood is like that one black guy, like you have Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's a bit old now, but for a very mm-hmm. long time he was the good guy, the good black guy. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and then you have. Blair Underwood, who was mm. the, the bad guy, and every time you saw him on your screen, you were like, "No, I don't like you, but you're so hot. I like you anyway." Yeah. <laughs> exactly, but I can see him doing like a younger version of him doing it. Somebody like that, I think he would be because you know what? I remember him from Set It Off when he was playing the banker, and he was just so. I think like that version of him would make a perfect Holden for Paul. I don't know. I could kind of see. I kind of struggled with this one a little bit. Um, I could kind of see there's a guy that I came across the other day. I can't remember his name. I'm just trying to remember. But uh, maybe, what's the, what's the guy? Um, gosh, his name is Daniel something. Let me see if I can um, think. What is Daniel Kal- Kaluuya? Kaluuya? Daniel Kaluuya, Kaluuya, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he, I think as a bad guy, I really, really like him. Yes. I think as an indifferent guy. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I love. I I just want to see him in a romantic comedy because he's. Yeah. He, he, I think he'd be he, a really fun Paul. I think yes, he Paul's like yes, really really well. Yes. Yeah. He, he would bring some funny in him, so mm. people wouldn't hate him. Like yeah. Paul, I feel like an actor who who decided to to portray Paul in a very dark way. Um, mm. maybe people would end up uh hate mm. him, but. In the meantime, like you said, when you know the mm. background story for Paul, mm. you understand why he's this way. So mm. you, you, there's some humanity in there that I feel like someone mm. like that yes. would bring out. Mm. I, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some humanity in Paul for sure. He's he's just, I mean, like I say, he's a little bit of a mess, but 
you know, you, you kind of gotta love him for that because he's a mess. Like the thing is, you can hate Paul, but still not hate Paul. If that makes sense. Yes, 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 absolutely. Okay, yeah. okay. So honestly, for Eileen, I wasn't thinking about Zoe Kravitz. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking more like maybe someone like um, Coco Jones. Coco Jones? Yes, she's uh, she used to be a, a Disney. Um, oh yeah, actress. Uh-huh. Let it shine, right? See her yes, her let it shine. Yes, mm-hmm. and uh, right now she has a show, uh, a YouTube show with uh, Terrell. Mm-hmm. They cook. It's a cooking show, and she's hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I feel really? like she would be, mm-hmm. she would portray Eileen in the same. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you have to be strong, but in the mm-hmm. meantime, you feel like there's some, there's something vulnerable behind it, and mm-hmm. she can be funny. She's so funny, and mm-hmm. she would deliver the lines. Like sometimes mm-hmm. Eileen would say stuff, and Holden is like. <laughs> is she serious or not? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Is, is that is, yeah. that a job? So, mm-hmm. so I feel like she, yeah, Coco Jones, that's my girl. Okay. And she's uh, so gorgeous. She's yeah. so gorgeous. Yes, she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, for mm-hmm. Holden to my Coco Jones, um, <laughs> I would see maybe just, I'm such a fan of Haldis Hodge right now, but I feel like he's a bit, uh, a bit too old. So it would be a younger version of him. Like maybe when you see, I think he was yeah. in a, a, a film with uh-huh. Taraji P. Henson. I don't, okay. I don't remember the name of the film. But yeah, was this it? young mm-hmm. version of him without the uh, without the beard. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, I this whole hard, you said? Yes. Uh, H-O-D-G. Hodge is his name? Yes, Hodge. Aldis Hodge. Oh, Aldis Hodge. Yes. Oh. Mm. So either him, oh. but, without, but without the. I like him. I yes. Like him. Yeah. I like him. With. I'm not I'm gonna have fun. It's a while, yeah. Yeah, but I feel like. Well, it's not that too old to play Eileen right now. Uh, not no, Eileen. he's Wait, not. Hold on. He's yes. not. He's, yes. No, because he's 34. Yes. Yeah, he's like almost like the perfect age, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw him in some movie uh, where he was really, um, he was just so, he was his old man, but he was still thoughtful. He was still sincere. Yeah, I, I, that's not a bad choice either. I, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't mind casting him either. He's actually kind of a nerd and he, mm-hmm. you kind of feel like he's uh, the kind of guy. Yes. Yeah, so, so, mm-hmm. so you feel he's the kind of guy like he needs to be Everything has to be very technical and very preci- precise. Mm-hmm. He's precise. Mm-hmm. And when uh, since uh, Holden is a mortician, so you have mm-hmm. you have to be very um, strict on the procedures mm-hmm. and everything. So mm-hmm. I feel like he would be great. And in the meantime, the way he delivers some lines, is, it I don't think it's supposed to be funny. But although mm-hmm. he's very serious in the way he's saying mm-hmm. it. Because it's yes. and the way he exactly. carries himself, so it's mm-hmm. like it's so funny. But yeah, so that would be Coco Jones, Eileen, and Holden would be Alice Hodge. And this is for- why we're gonna put you to, on the casting team, right? Yeah, we're gonna put you on the casting team. <laughs> I that- have not found anybody for Clifford. I love Clifford so much, but I I can't like I just can't find anybody who would 
play him. And the thing is, like, because I think I see him so clearly, like, so, so clearly, I have not found somebody who I ever thought would, would do him justice. Like, because Clifford almost kind of reminds me of, like, uh, Bill Cosby mixed with Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's so weird. Yeah. Because he's like, you know, he, he almost talks like he's drunk in that kind of indifferent way. Yes. But then there's still like fatherly guidance, kind of like Bill Cosby on the Cosby show. Yes. So there's like a real weird mix, you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, and yeah. I don't feel like, you know, like you said, I don't think there's a Black actor right now mm-hmm. that would be... So Clifford would would probably someone no one knows. It would be someone you... Yeah, exactly. 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 Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. That's the thing. I can't think of anyone who would be my perfect Clifford because he's not... He's like at a funny age where he's like 50, but I don't want him to look too polished. Because, you know, Clifford's a little wild. I can even see him like with dreadlocks or something or like just really scruffy hair that like, he doesn't comb too often, but it so works for him because that's who he is. Um, Yeah, I I really have to, to, we'd have to look high and low for our Clifford. Okay, so we got sidetracked a little bit. <laughs> oh sorry <laughs> no no it's me it's me because but i love i love playing fan guys because i mm-hmm. i just is this something that you would like for your book that uh mm-hmm. there's um i mean would you like to see a film adaptation or maybe a tv film adaptation i'd love to um because i mean obviously i'd want it filmed here i'd want it to be to ha- feature at least one local actor so that then we get the accent absolutely right um you know what i mean i just i just would love 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 to see some some more beijing films not just because it's my book but just because it's beijing you know i'd love to see that Tim Tim so um can you tell us how uh you got Uh, the vanishing girls published because like i like i told you in the before we started the interview i really want people to to realize that you have many ways to get your book published Mm -hmm. so don't be afraid just know they exist and figure out which one which which Mm -hmm. path is better for you and just go for Mm -hmm. it so can you tell us how did you get the vanishing girls published um well i i I self-published not just this, but also my first book, The Girl with the Hazel Eyes. Um, I I did come across a few people that read it and they said, oh, you should have sold a publisher and I don't know why you insist on self-publishing all the time. And I think that's partly because there is still some stigma around self-publishing. Um, some people feel like And I've even seen it in reviews for my own books where people say, I can't believe this is (laughs) self-published because self-publishing still has that rap where, you know, it's seen as a vanity thing as opposed to a way to take control of a narrative which may not be understood by, I want to say, anglicized, (laughs) an anglicized publishing industry. And this is no disrespect to smaller Caribbean presses, but I feel like um, when we, or any press for that matter, I feel like when we put these things in the hands of these presses, they dictate the 
the packaging and the presentation and the marketing and all these things. And that's great because it can help to really penetrate some markets that you may not have gotten into on your own. But at the same point in time, I find when you have complete control over the process, I feel like there's a different passion that you you put into it. And, and I feel too like people want to be part of that passion because I feel like once you're not as heavily involved, then it, it kind of makes it a product less than a passion if that makes any sense it becomes a product and less of a passion so i i feel like that is the beautiful thing about self-publishing that when you put so much into it when you pour into it so deeply that you you have a different approach to it and and people can feel that and people love that and people want to be a part of that in a different kind of way So since you self-published, um, how did you how did you do the the editing process? Um, with the editing, um, I did it myself, and I used a couple of different um apps. Like I used software to spell check. Um, I had a few people doing um, including you, um, doing some data reading for me, um. And then obviously I went back to it and went over it and made some changes and that type of thing, depending on what the feedback was. It's really, really important to, to have beta readers. And I would recommend to anyone who is doing it. I mean, I'm sure that your family members are great, but unless they're readers, you know, you can try to find beta readers online because, you know, you, you want somebody who's going to be honest with you because trust me, once that book is out there, reviewers are going to be honest with you and uh, you want people who are going to come back and give you constructive criticism who are accustomed to reading in certain genres as well because if you're writing romance and the people who are better reading for you they are accustomed only to reading crime fiction you know their feedback is not necessarily going to be the best thing to help you get the traction you need in that particular genre so definitely try to get some beta readers who read widely or are really keen on the genre you're into um definitely do your research in terms of which platforms and publishing options are right for you i mean a lot of people use um tindle and that's good because they have so much um of the market but then also some people choose to go wide and and, and that does well for them um that is something that i'm actually looking to do right now i'm going to be repackaging the girl with the hazel eyes um for the second edition so it's going to be a slightly different cover there's going to be um some some bonus material as well mm-hmm. and and then when yeah so when that's done that's what i'm working on right now and when that's done i'm going to be expanding the distribution to um, different online markets because i feel like you know now is the time to to start you know you have to have a strategy for your publishing and i'm not saying my strategy is the best one i'm just saying that is what i've decided on um and it comes through some trial and error and you know you have to keep doing your research because publishing is changing so quickly all the time and you have to always be abreast of trends and products and platforms and everything else that goes into it And so you are talking about uh, Caribbean uh, publishing houses, but did you think about maybe try with U.S. publishing houses or maybe like for indie 
Pelletier. She's um, it's a, a UK publishing house that mm-hmm. um, that published um, her books mm-hmm. in a traditional way. So you it's not limited to the Caribbean. Did you think mm-hmm. about reaching out maybe to a publishing house in the US or in in Europe? Well, um, as I don't believe that they really encourage that. You usually have to get an agent, and your agent will. Um, you know, find the best publishing house for your book. Um, but I don't have an agent either. Whereas, Nat- well, Natalie Engine Peltier, she does. So uh, that is also part of what I haven't done. I haven't looked for an agent. I really, <laughs> I really should. Um, but I guess I'll get around to it pretty soon at some point. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, there are many publishing houses. So um, the thing with the Caribbean ones, though, is that it's a little easier to to work with them just because. Um, there isn't necessarily always the uh, requirement for an outside agent because they're smaller. From what I've gathered, you can just, you know, you know, approach them and see if they'd be interested in your book and that type of thing. And the thing is, there is some technicality in, in even finding an agent because you have to find an agent who is A, going to believe in your project, B, who's going to work hard for you, C, who's going to be honest with you. Because I've I've heard quite a few and I've seen a couple of... Um, <laughs> A couple of tweets on Twitter where people would call out the, their agents because they would say, you know, this is two years I've been trying to get my royalties from you and it happened. And mm-hmm. that's not, and the sad part, that's, that's not unusual. Mm-hmm. And this isn't to disparage any part of it, of having an agent or whatever, but the truth is you can spend a year writing a book and that book only sells for a few dollars. The truth is you could have made more money if it was about the money, get on a job. If you only sell a couple copies of that book, if you get what I mean, you're not going to make a mint doing it. Um, but at the same time, <clears throat> putting that book together costs a lot of money. So it's, it's really not fair to, and, and some of those costs, writers have to, to absorb themselves because Nobody does covers and proof editing and that type of thing for free to get it ready for an agent and that type of thing, or even sometimes subscriptions to beta reading sites and that type of thing. So, you know, it's not about the money, but it is about at least covering some of your investments at the very least. So, it, when, when, so there is technicality no matter what you do. There's a technicality in knowing how to publish and knowing how to market and preparing your book yourself. And there's also a technicality in making sure you do your due diligence and find an agent who's going to be good to you and is going to make sure your stuff does well, that you do well. I was just thinking about what you said about the fact that some authors can afford not to have a day job, a nine to five. But all the authors I'm talking to, they have a nine to five. Maybe it's a new way to approach writing as a job Like maybe it's not necessarily a side hustle, but you can still think about it as a real job, but you will work from nine to five to finance this writing job. I'm thinking along as I speak, so maybe it's a bit all over the place, but I feel like we have this idea that you, an author, if you do just writing, your only source of income is selling your books. Caribbean people are scared mm-hmm. to go for for their artistic passion because it's either you do your passion or you do the real job. But can can we not combine the two? Can yeah. we not combine the two? Yeah, you know, I find that there are more and more authors who are 
committing to the idea of being full-time um, because you are right I mean most authors well most artists really because being an, a writer means you're an artist and, and you know your computer or your pen and paper they're your tools um, most artists unless they're very very successful in their household names they really can't live off of what they make doing their art for the most part so it is really important for us to approach it as a business and there are different schools of thought about approaching it as a business so one reason why I haven't really written as much this year is because um, I've decided to focus a little bit more on the more technical aspects of writing so I've gone to some online seminars about writing and that type of thing and they lay out formulas for how you can become a full-time author and some of them I mean it's a little <laughs> to be frank I've asked myself if it is possible to crank out a book a month because some of them will tell you that when you crank out a book a month not only do you activate Amazon's algorithms in your favor right but you also are able to 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 have enough new stuff that you will have audiences who will consistently wait around because the problem is as with anything else if I release a book in March which I did this is now August you know I'm yesterday's news so you have to stay present in people's minds by continuing to put out these books mm. the only difficulty with that formula is that you already need to be doing it full-time to do it full-time if you get what I mean yes it's going to be really difficult to make that segue unless you tell yourself you know what I've got a year's worth of savings and I'm going to work consistently nothing's going to go wrong for the next year and then I can do this because I will not kid you um the last three months before I launched my book I spent maybe and this is literally 16 hours a day every day for about three months just getting the book ready for publication. So this means edits. This means conversations with um, <clears throat> cover designer. This means going back and forth with Amazon because we had some technical difficulties. I think because of the pandemic, there were delays in, in the pre-order schedules. Um, this means um, getting art copies to reviewers. This means, I mean, all these logistical things, right? Mm that needed to be done and I was doing it 16 hours a day for three months so this means a lot of other things in my life are being neglected and that is to my mind unsustainable for me to do while I crank out a book a month because they're saying and I've had other people come to me and say to me you should not you're an indie author there's no you should be releasing a book that is 25,000 words long. You should only do, a, the most you should do is 25,000 words. I've had many people tell me that. They say you will never make it as an indie author if you're writing books that are that long. But I say it to me personally, that's, that's what I want to write. And I keep saying all the time, and this is how I think people <laughs> are sure that I'm not in it for the money. Because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not doing what other people have told me to do to be able to make it and, and make a lot of money doing it. I'm not saying that I'm against writing shorter books because I do have some ideas for books that I think will be better as shorter reads. But you know what I mean? The, the, you have to you have to conform to certain standards if you're going to crank out these books 
one a month and, and you're going to have to, you know, it also challenges your creativity because are you going to be able to write differently enough every month that you can write completely different books every month? You know, there, there are lots of questions that you have to ask yourself if you're going to make the switch to being a full-time author full-time indie author at that because the the traditional publishing I don't think that they're going to release a book for you every month they will not not as far as I know I haven't seen it otherwise otherwise so you will have to commit to that because most traditionally published authors they do have other jobs I think 99% of them the, the figures there so yes it is possible but right now in the current um, environment there's certain things you have to do to to make it work like that to become full-time well, that was very insightful. So which writing advice would you give to your younger self? Um, I would probably tell my younger self to that nothing happens before it's time. And just don't think about it so much. Just do. Just just do whatever and, and it's gonna be all right. <laughs> um I feel like I, I I spent so long writing Girl with the Hazel Eyes. Um not when I was writing it, but when I was editing it, after I finally decided to publish it, it was like, I questioned every single thing. I obsessed and obsessed and obsessed. And I mean, I thought I was going to pull my hair out, but you know, I, I think in the end, I just had to let it go. And I, I would tell myself, you know what, it's going to be all right. Just, just let it go. It's, it's not as bad as I think it is. Tim Tim, what I hope you guys enjoyed our discussion. Let me know in the comments. You can follow Kelly on Instagram and Twitter at Bajankali, B-A-J-A-N-C-A-L-L-I-E. And I think she's also on TikTok. You can check out her website, kellybrowning.com. The Girl with the Hazel Eyes and the Vanishing Girls are still available. Since the recording of this discussion, Kali's short story was featured in Midnight Hour, a chilling anthology of crime fiction from 20 authors of color, edited by Wall Street Journal best-selling author Abby L. Vendiver. Kali was the only Caribbean author among best-selling and well-known authors in the crime fiction genre. Make sure to go and buy her books. Even if it's just not straight-up romance, it will make you swoon. I promise you won't regret it. This Caribbean romance community cannot exist without your support. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out timtimboafik.com for more Caribbean books. You can email me at timtimboafik at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at timtimboafik. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Core. And to help the podcast get more visibility, share it with your friends, your family, your neighbors, and you can give it five stars on Apple Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you à dans d'autres soleils.